All right, we're uh, wrapping up chapter 11 today, the great chapter on the Hall of Faith, and we've been spending the last few weeks looking at different people and their lives and some of their great victories and conquests and um, really trying to understand the, the power of faith uh, for, ours, for our lives as well. And, but today's a little bit, I think, different. If you, if you were paying attention as you were reading, um, you might have noticed that, you know, big sort of turn here in the tone of the, the, the chapter, the, um, the direction it's heading, and we're going to spend some time trying to understand that. Uh, we'll start with a simple exercise. I want you guys to do this. You, you know, you don't have to talk to anyone to do this. I'm just going to ask you a simple question. If you could map out the best possible life for yourself, all right, the best possible life, all right, what would that look like, right? You could think about, I don't know, whatever it is, if it's the school, the, the career, the life, or the, the house, or where you live, whatever it would involve, what your family would look like. But what is that best possible life? If you had the ability to plan it and make it happen, right? Just maybe just a couple seconds to think about that. The author of Hebrews, I think, is trying to explain to us that if our version of the best possible life does not deal with our eternal lives, then we're not understanding the better life, the better thing that God has provided for us. All right, so that's really the main point of today. If you got it and you believe in it, you're 100% yes, amen, you can rest right now. All right, you're cool. You understand, I think, what Hebrews 11 is saying. We start off in verse 35 with this maybe kind of interesting statement for some of us. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I think this statement actually goes along with Pastor Steve's sermon last week. Last week, Pastor Steve was talking about the victorious faith that we have in Christ. And I think this is kind of the, the sort of the final argument of that victorious faith. That, that even women were receiving their children back from the dead. There's two pretty clear uh, stories that the original audience, when they heard this, would have thought of. It's the stories uh, involved with the prophets Elijah and Elisha, found in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings chapter 4. If it wasn't as obvious for us, that's okay. We don't have time to go over both of it, but I thought it'd be kind of interesting if we kind of at least summarize uh, one of them. And the one is uh, Elijah and um, Veronica, we'll see how good you are at just following along, but I'm not going to read it. I'm going to kind of like summarize the story, and you kind of just pick the verses you think I'm talking about, all right? So this is a good test for you. Um, you know, anyone else, I wouldn't even try it, but you're so good at this, right? Well, we have the prophet Elijah, and, and unfortunately for him, the word of the Lord that came to him that he had to take to to Israel was that there was going to be a drought in the land. This drought was going to last, well, we'd find out later, three years and six months. And, you know, if you're from L.A., Orange County, we're not that unfamiliar with sort of, you know, water shortage or drought. We were not that far removed from one here 
ourselves. And to be honest, it, I felt like the drought we went through didn't affect me that much. I, you know, I, except I just saw people killing their yard, uh, you know, right, lawns. That was, that was kind of the extent of the drought. In the time of, of Elijah, though, a, a drought of three years and six months, it, it's a life or death situation. And it would have a tremendous impact upon a community that really depended upon rain. So it, to be a prophet of the Lord and say, hey, there's going to be a drought, that's, that's terrible news, first of all. Now, God comes, and, and again, this was because of judgment. They were, the country was being led into idolatry, Ahab, Jezebel, terrible, terrible time. God comes to Elijah and says, hey, I need you to go to a place, it's kind of far, Zarephath, and there's a widow there. You're going to go to her, okay? She's going to feed you, right? And so he goes there, he comes upon the, he sees her, and he asks for a drink, of water, not a problem, but as she goes to get that for him, he says, wait a minute, also bring me some bread. Now this creates a little bit of problem. The water was okay, but I think the bread was a little bit much because when he asked for the bread, her response was this, it's found in verse 12, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So he obeys the Lord, asks the widow for food and water, and the response is, look, only reason I'm out right now is I'm getting a few sticks so I can prepare the final meal for my son and I. This is all that we have left, it's kind of her way of saying, hey, I, I don't have anything I can give to you. We're even down to our last meal. This is our death meal. We're going to eat it and then starve to death. You know, if, if, if I'm Elijah, I'm kind of like, oh, <laughs> oh, sorry, my bad. I think you're the wrong widow. <laughs> uh, man, uh, can I pray for you, <laughs> right? Or, you know, I, I think I'd be thrown there for a loop. And, but Elijah, man, he's just a different character. Well, his response is, do not fear. Go and do as I, as, as I have said, as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it. Bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. <laughs> I don't know if I could say that. Right? That's a, Pastor Steve, I, I doubt any of us would be able to do that. But he does. And the amazing thing is, is that her response is, yeah, she goes off and she does that. And then the response of the Lord is that what? The Lord sort of honors, I guess, the faith of this widow and in verse 16, we see that this jar of flour was never spent. It never ran out of flour. The jug of oil never became empty. It was this magical, unending source of flour and oil. It was exactly done according to the word of the Lord that was spoken by the prophet Elijah. I just think remarkable faith from both parties. From Elijah to say it 
to believe it, you know, and for the widow to accept that word of the Lord from the prophet. Long story short, they live a while like this, and then the son dies. The widow is heartbroken, comes to Elijah, and obviously at this point, there's, because of what has been going on with the, the flour and the oil, she has some concept that there is some power to this God that Elijah serves and follows. And so in her mind, what has happened is the sinfulness of her and her son is being judged now by this living God. And it's all Elijah's fault. He came, he exposed their family to their, their God, and now God is judging them. And so the son has passed away. And Elijah's response is he cries out to the Lord, verse 20, Lord my God, have you brought calamity, calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself on the, upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the son rises from the dead. And what's interesting is that Jesus himself would later in his life and ministry remarkably comment upon this widow. And it was at the time when he was not being accepted by his hometown of Nazareth. And as that was happening, he turned to his people of Nazareth and he, and he you know what he says to them? He says, and, and this is crazy, I, I love it, all right? He says, do you guys remember in the time of Elijah, there was a drought that went on for three years and six months? During that time, you know how many widows there were in Israel? A lot. And what does God do? Instead of sending Elijah to the widows of Israel, he sends, them where, he sends him where? To a faraway foreign land. And his whole point was that if there's not going to be faith in Israel, well, God will send the word and his prophet somewhere else, right? And so in a way, Jesus was commenting upon how the one faith of this one widow in a faraway place, Zara, Fath, and Sidon, was greater than, right? Even all of the Israelites, the Israelites were engaging in idolatry led by their king and queen. And then the author of Hebrews here in 11 comments upon this and includes this episode in the story of victorious faith, right? There's been almost this crescendo of, of victory and amazing things that God was doing in the lives of his people. And he uses this as his final sort of cherry on top. Women were receiving the dead back to life. Amazing. What could be better than that? People of faith, so strong, so connected to God that they were experiencing even things like this. But right away he switches, and, and right away now, in, verse, in the same verse, as, as soon as he f he's finished with this sentence, he says, but some were tortured. Tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. The actual original uh, text and language it says a better resurrection. Now, the, the word torture, all right, some were tortured. I, I think right away it, it's, it's surprising because so far we've been hearing about how God has been honoring 
the faith of his people. But all of a sudden we come to a description of people who were being tortured. Verse 36, even suffering all kinds of things, being mocked and flogged, chains and imprisonment. 37, being stoned, uh, sawn in half, in two, uh, killed with the sword being not only physically mistreated and punished or persecuted, but living a destitute life, right? Wandering about in deserts and mountains uh, in skins of sheep and goats, destituted, uh, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. This is a totally different description. And so maybe, okay, maybe God's talking about people who weren't obedient. Maybe he's talking about people he was judging but in verse 39, it says this, and all these, right, though commended through their faith. So they were commended because of their faith. So we're not talking about people who were disobedient. We're not talking about enemies of God. We're talking about the same people. We don't have names here. There's almost every commentator will, will talk about what probably the original audience was thinking of when they heard these things. And, but for whatever reason, he leaves out names. And that's not something he was doing all throughout Hebrews 11, right? He had been listing and giving names, but here he, he stops doing that. And he just throws out these incredible statements. When I was in ninth grade, um, one of the assignments my English teacher gave me was... Um, a research paper, we'd write a 15 page research paper, and we're like, ah, oh, 15 pages, right? Font 12 or something, right? Double space, one inch margins. But she said, you could pick any topic you want. You just have to write a research paper. And the, I don't know why, okay? I, the topic I picked was medieval torture. <laughs> so you can imagine, my ninth grade English teacher, I think, thought I was, you know, something was off or something, but. Right, I turned in a 15-page paper on medieval torture. I don't even remember what my thesis was. I just, I did a lot of research on torture in ninth grade. And so when I, <laughs> when I come across uh, this passage here, my mind started racing and started remembering and imagining and thinking about torture. The, the idea we have, and the idea I think that we like, is we want God to look at our faith and say, you know what, maybe he or she is not perfect, but look, he's he, trying, and so that's my child, so I, I'm going to protect my child, I'm going to guard my child, I'm going I'm to put this bubble around him or her, and, and because of his or her faith, and their efforts, man, they're gonna have this amazing victory. Like the woman who received their dead back from, by, by, resu by resurrection. But some were not able to receive that life. Others did not receive that life. They received the opposite. The thing that is key to understanding this, I think, right? is in this short phrase, they refused to accept release. 
Or another way is they refuse to accept deliverance. G.H. Morrison has a great quote on this. He's a preacher. He says this, So this also is a result of faith. Not that it brings deliverance to a man, but that sometimes when deliverance is offered, it gives him a fine courage to refuse it. There are seasons when faith shows itself in taking. There are seasons when it is witnessed in refusing. There is a deliverance that faith embraces. Listen to this. There is a deliverance that faith rejects. And that was the story of these people that we're reading about today. They were people who had an option. Whether it was the Jewish Maccabees who were being persecuted because they wanted to hold on to the, the old laws of God, but the, the Hellenistic uh, uh, king and leader uh, was telling them, no, you have to let go of those things. You have to be modern. And it was something as simple as eating the meat of a pig. A 90-year-old priest, Eliezer, was tortured because he said, no, God's law says I will not and cannot eat of that. There were the stories of seven brothers who were tortured gruesomely. I'm not going to go into it. Young people here. Ultimately killed. Because they wouldn't eat pork. Because they said, my God forbids this. And there's these examples of these men of faith who had the option of saying, I can choose to live. But they refused that deliverance. Why? The author of Hebrew gives us a simple, simple statement. End of verse 35. So that they might rise again to a better resurrection. Okay? Hear that again. So that they might rise again to a better life, better resurrection. Whatever you want to translate it as. Now, if you think about that, it should serve as a, as a pretty stark contrast to the sentence right before this. The sentence right before it reminds us that women receive back their dead by resurrection. But here, these people were tortured. They refused to accept deliverance. Why? So that they may, might rise again to a better resurrection. Well, what was the difference between those resurrections? Was one more effective? Was one more easier? Was one more quicker? Was one more just a better experience? Why is one better than the other? Well, the son of the widow of Zarephath, he was raised from the dead, but what was he raised back into? She had just enough flour and just enough oil to make one final meal until God showed up with Elijah. And that was the life that he was resurrected back into. These people who were tortured and refused to accept release, who suffered the mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonments, being stoned, being cut in half, which by the way is the tradition of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. It's not in the Bible, but tradition holds that he was cut in half. That's how he met his death. The tradition says that Jeremiah met his death by being stoned. That these prophets of the Lord, it's not that they were living wicked lives and they were deserving of, they were trying to do their best by serving God, and what did they meet as their result of that? They, they were cut in two. 
these people, the reason why they were able to refuse that deliverance, which G.H. Morrison reminds us that refusal is an act of faith. They were able to do it because they knew that this life was not the best life, that there was a better life. You know, at the end of this passage in this chapter, starting in verse 39, it says this, all these, so everyone that we've just talked about in Hebrews 11, they were commended through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. They didn't receive it. So, you know, parents, right, if, if your kids ever uh, said to you, hey, you promised, you're like, oh, right? It's almost like, like, like that sword that they're sticking in your heart, right? You promised that. You said you would take me to Disneyland. I didn't know it was $180, <laughs> you know, right? It's like, man, we got to, like, give up eating for a month to go to Disneyland. Uh, they never said to God, but you promised. We're willing to be tortured. We're willing to be mocked. We're willing to be imprisoned. We were willing to be cut in half. And yet their cry was not, oh, you promised and you're not coming through. What was it? Verse 40 says this, why? Since God had provided something better for us and that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Verse 40 is fascinating. All of a sudden, the author of Hebrews speaks directly to his audience, speaks directly to us today, thousands of years later, speaks to the church. And what does he do? He combines us with these sort of great heroes of faith from Hebrews 11. And he says, they did not receive that promise because apart from us, apart from us, they weren't going to be made perfect that we would be a part of this promise. So what is that promise? What is that promise that we are also a part of? That they would receive with us, all of us together, sort of this social or communal receiving of this better something that God has for us. It only makes sense if we understand, and, and the author of Hebrews has been talking about it the whole book. The life the covenantal life we have in the better savior, the better mediator, the better covenant, because of the better high priest, the better sacrifice, Jesus Christ. That is the better something that God has for us. At the beginning of this chapter, the author of Hebrews defined faith this way. He gave us two things. He said, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Sometimes we say faith is like blind faith. You gotta just, you gotta just believe something. I know it sounds crazy, but just believe it. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. The author of Hebrews is saying, look, here's something you are hoping for, but you are so certain. You believe in it. You know it's going to happen. You know God is going to come through. That it's almost like you might as well have received it already. 
Maybe you haven't seen the kingdom of heaven. You haven't seen your Savior. But you are so convicted of what you haven't yet seen that you might as well have seen it. And that was what enabled and empowered these people to deny deliverance and accept suffering for the Lord. It wasn't useless suffering. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like self-inflicted suffering. It wasn't like they were idiots and they did something that brought suffering upon them. They were suffering because of their decision to follow Christ. And my, my, I guess this is how I'll conclude is, this is, this is a difficult, difficult word. It, I had trouble, to be honest, I, I, tossed and, I never toss and turn. I lay down in my bed and I'm, right? I, I, I'm out and my family can't sleep because I'm snoring. You know, my neighbors are probably struggling. I was, it, for me, it was hard because, look, I'm the first here that would confess, man, I, I love comfort. Right? I may not enjoy a lot of it, but I love luxury. I love not suffering. I love the idea of being a victorious servant of the Lord. Like, if I have to give a message, I want there to be like some kind of like, yeah. Not like, boo, stone him, cut him in half. Right? I mean, what, like, right? That would be weird if I wanted that. And yet, there's this, man, and I guess it comes down to this. Do I believe, am I convicted of, do I have that faith that says, you know what, I know that there is a better life that Christ has for me. That no matter how hard I try to build something up here, it's not better, not even close to the gift that Christ will give to me. Amen? So my challenge and I think the application of, of, of this sort of conclusion about faith is God provides something better and it's better than whatever you can build for yourself. It's better than whatever dream you can chase. It's even difficult to imagine how great his gift is for us. But if we would just hold on to that. Because the thing is, we have what these guys didn't. We have Christ. Maybe we haven't seen them with our eyes, but we can read about the work and the love, the heart of Christ. I highly, highly recommend you come to our next Hebrews chapter 12. Pastor Steve's going to preach that. That's gonna, that's, it's like the building block on top of this. Why did he endure suffering? Why did he die for us? Let's pray. Dearly Father, we confess to you that often our strategy is to avoid pain, avoid suffering, avoid any kind of discomfort. Our strategy is to build a very comfortable castle. We want to be considered worthy of the world. And it, it's actually crazy to try and think about living as strangers in this world and people who would be mocked, imprisoned, uh, tortured, 
because of our faith in you. What we ask for, Lord, is that you would just remind us every single day that you are worth it, that you are better than anything we could achieve here for ourselves, that this would drive us to be the church you want us to be, that this would force us to become the kinds of husbands and dads and wives and moms and children that we ought to be, that you would also commend one day our faithfulness. Uh, We need your help for that, Lord, and so we come humbly before you and, and ask for it pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This time we're going to go into a time of offering, and I really just want to encourage you to consider uh, the greatness of Christ and how great his promise is. And let's just give and prepare our offering with a, a grateful heart. And if you do have the uh, Japanese home state card, that filling that in doesn't mean you're locked in. But, you know, if you want some information, please fill it in and drop it in the offering basket.